So just a quick recap where we're at in going through Van Drunen's book. We had an intro, and then uh, we looked at the first Adam and the last Adam, uh, creation and fall, as really providing a framework. Should I turn this off, or should we turn it down? Is it too loud? How does it sound for you guys? It's too loud. It's too loud. Someone, I can... Are you, are we, I mean, I'm recording on my phone, so... Okay, so it doesn't matter. Okay. All right. Can you guys hear me? What? <laughs> so, saw what you did there. Um, so, we looked at um, creation, covenant of works, covenant of creation, God's goal and purpose for his created order. And then the last Adam, redemption and consummation. And then we took two um, weeks, two lessons to look at Old Testament so- sojourners. First, the model of the patriarchs. And then the model of the time in exile. So that idea of sojourners and exiles. Um, today we're going to look at New Testament sojourners. Uh, Van Drunen talked about this a little bit last week. But there are some... I thought it would be worth going through his material in a little bit more orderly fashion. Two weeks from today is Ascension Day. We'll have a worship service here. Uh, June 1st, we'll cover the next chapter, which is on the church. In particular, it comes up in this chapter, but a little bit more explicit about how we think about the spirituality of the church, the character of the church, our participation in the church and the world during uh, this age in the New Covenant. And then the final uh, session is education, vocation, and politics. More practically, how we live in the world and the church as believers. Um, That takes us up through June 15th. I figured the first Thursday in July, uh, we may do a hymn sing. And then probably take the rest of the summer off. I have some travel and the summer is the summer. So that will wrap things up for this year on this this Thursday night study. Well, turning to this material, uh, Van Drunen identifies pretty early on in this chapter a crucial claim. And I think it's worth, you know, uh, happy for some uh, questions on this tonight if it comes up and, and sort of interrogating this claim. But his claim of this chapter is the church is the only institution or community in the present world that can be identified with the kingdom proclaimed by Christ. Now, he's not saying, um, it depends how we interpret that, he's not saying that that it, it is identical to the kingdom proclaimed by Christ. There may be more to the kingdom, indeed the coming king and the new creation, but in the world today, the only institution that does have... And identification with that kingdom is the church. So, um, what's what's the basis for this claim? Well, he starts with Peter, um, Peter's epistle, where three times, as uh, he mentioned in his uh, presentation a couple weeks back, he refers to believers as exiles and sojourners. Um, In the opening, Peter, an apostle, addresses the letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Um, in chapter or verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, throughout the time of your exile. And finally, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then here, again, following verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, So 
Peter and other passages in the New Testament, according to Van Drunen, is explicitly hailing, pulling up this Old Testament model. And just very broadly, that we are called to live in lands that are not our own. It's the idea of the dispersion, right, being cast out. Um, In those lands, we will be adjacent to unbelievers. Uh, We are before them, visible to them. We work alongside of them. Uh, Peter will also say we are to be subject to every human institution. This is not a, a position of dominion, but of subjection in and among the institutions of the world. Of course, Peter will refer exp- explicitly to the emperor. Um, also to servants, right? Be subject to your masters. Assuming that institutions of servitude, slavery, continue, persist in the world, even alongside uh, membership in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we say this, but we also don't want to let go of the fact that, that the position of the New Testament church, though it is one of exile and sojourning, is far superior to Old Testament saints, even Old Testament saints that lived uh, within the glorious kingdom, uh, somewhat glorious kingdom of Israel. Christians can see their place in redemptive history much more clearly. They can look back on the completed work of Christ. They know that, that Jesus has fulfilled the task of the first Adam. He has truly entered in as an ascended Lord. We'll celebrate in two weeks, right? In our flesh, He has entered into the heavenly places. He sits on the throne. Um, and He has, in that sense, ushered in the new creation and brought us with Him into uh, that inaugurated uh, new creation. Another blessing of the age in which we live is the church. Um, this church is not uh, a mere family like it was in the age of Abraham. Um, it's not a particular nation or ethnicity. It's not local. It's Catholic. It's universal. Um, Conrad, I imagine, might have the most recent experience here. But when you worship in a church abroad, um, if you've had that opportunity, um, things can be very different, right? Different language, different rhythms. Um, but often, uh, you still feel that connection, right? Maybe it's the Lord's Prayer, even in a foreign tongue, a creed, um, text of Scripture. And there is this knowledge that even though you might be on the other side of the world, uh, that you are a part of one common church. There's really nothing like that in the world. I think we take it for granted, right? Um, and, and as fractured and divided as the church is, denominations, confessional divisions, um, we confess that one truth, right? Right? Uh, The church is composed of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And, of course, it is in the church that this is true. This isn't a general broad statement. It's in the church that, as Paul says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And we've seen this in Ephesians already, right? It's, It's in the church that these divisions are broken down. And this is really what sets up this claim. The church is the only institution or community in the present world that can be identified with the kingdom of Christ. No uh, nation can claim that. There is no Christian nation. There is no Christian family. Um, There are Christian families, (laughs) right? But even there, even on the model of Old Testament election, right? Jacob and Esau. Even in our families, we know that there can be uh, division, even among the faith in our families. And I'm, I'm sure that many of us live with that reality today. No race can be identified 
with the church of God on earth, uh, God's people. And uh, this church community, as, as Peter teaches us, is, is uh, a community of sojourners and exiles because the common kingdom, which we've spoken of earlier, um, established in that Noahic covenant, still exists. It continues to exist. The kingdoms of the world established on God's authority are legitimate and continue. And so there are institutions outside of us which we may subject ourselves to and live among. So that, as, as the background, kind of leads to, to I think, a, three, a broad three-point argument. First of all, Van Drunen talks about how the church is the heir to these Old Testament kingdom promises. The redemptive kingdom is the church of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about how Matthew's gospel in particular talks about this kingdom of heaven coming to earth now through, uh, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, which I think could lead to some interesting discussion later, and Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, where he talks about Peter as the cornerstone, the rock upon which the church is built, and and the discussion of, of church discipline, the keys of the kingdom of God. And then finally, he, he concludes this section by talking a little bit about uh, some of the things that characterize how members of this redemptive kingdom of God, the church, uh, live um, and interact with the common kingdoms of the world. So, first of all, again, looking back to the earlier chapters, the redemptive kingdom and the church of God in Christ is founded in an explicit way with Abraham and the covenants of Genesis 15 and 17. It's founded as a family, but it is promised to become a nation, a kingdom of priests. And it finds its penultimate fulfillment before the ultimate return of Christ in this age in the church. So Van Drunen points out that Jesus didn't establish a state or a school or a family or a business venture. Uh, These things all already existed. I'm not sure if they had like 501c3 and corporation laws, but, um, you know, there were were business entities. Um, He established, though, a church. And this church that he establishes in his teaching um, inherits receives is the fulfillment, indeed, of these Abrahamic and Mosaic promises. The church is the only institution that can be identified with this redemptive plan and kingdom of God. Now, we'll get a little bit more in the next chapter into uh, what makes the church the church, but we'll sort of uh, look a little bit at this biblical foundation first. The church is the new covenant community that reaps the benefits of Christ's work in fulfilling uh, the promises to Abraham. It is where, uh, to state the obvious, right, salvation and eternal life are bestowed. We're not saved, again, by being citizens of a particular country. We're saved in and through the church. Paul addresses some of his letters, Galatians, for instance, to the churches of Galatia. They're the recipients of God's uh, new covenant uh, revelation. In Galatians, he makes it clear that the promises of Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ and in Christ's church. That the Mosaic order, the law, which Paul refers to in Galatians, right, is uh, no, no more now that faith has come. Where has faith come? To this church community. We've just been preaching through Ephesians 2 and 3. Makes the same claim, right? In the Old Testament, Gentiles are separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. 
But now they have become no longer strangers and aliens. But now, interesting, right? In this sense, they're no longer aliens. In this sense, they're no longer strangers. But fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. It is the church that receives um, the Gentiles. So this is the place of our uh, new creation citizenship built on the foundation of the apostles. He speaks of the structure, the holy temple of the Lord. And in chapter 3, I think as, as Luke preached, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the blessings promised in God's redemptive work in the old covenant are now realized in the church. Again, this might seem like me uh, repeating ad nauseum, stating the obvious, right? But as, as we're tempted to, to label and see different things in the world, and that's a Christian this or a Christian that, or maybe it's the, the Christian blue pages with all the Christian uh, corporations in it, right? Or, or Christian um, schools or uh, lots of things we want to describe and Christian nations. Um, in one sense, speaking most precisely, right, the church is the kingdom of God. Christ died for the church. So, turning now to Matthew's uh, gospel. Matthew is unique among uh, the gospels in that he refers to, uh, not the kingdom of God, but he often refers to the kingdom of heaven. Um, Of course, we know in John's gospel, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Similar idea. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that has come in the gospel, is something new. Um, The Sermon on the Mount illustrates how the kingdom of heaven uh, fulfills the Old Testament, but surpasses it as well. Jesus is greater than Moses. Christ and his kingdom bring the Old Testament redemptive kingdom and its law to fulfillment and completion. So he doesn't abolish it, right? But he does fulfill it. And in the course of doing so, um, he says, um, nothing from the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Um, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so he he is able to go beyond Moses, right? He he goes beyond Moses vis-a-vis divorce law. He goes beyond Moses in talking about murder and adultery. He says this is about anger and lust. So the Mosaic covenant, in distinction from the Abrahamic, uh, gave these detailed requirements about the legal and political life of God's people. And it prescribed a specific, strict form of justice. Right? The, uh, the eye for an eye, lex talionis. But this new covenant, we are exhorted to love God and neighbor. So there is a sense where um, things are different in the kingdom of heaven. Slap on the cheek should not provoke proportionate retaliation, right? It's turn the other cheek. The enemy should not inflame hatred. As uh, Van Drunen writes, the kingdom of heaven is a realm where the demands of justice seem strangely transcended. Well, how does this fulfill the law and not abolish it if you have these changes? Um... Benjamin makes a few points. He says, first of all, that it's not mostly about ethics, but it's about Jesus, right? Jesus comes, he uh, replaces, as it were, Moses and that authority. He opens up by claiming authority, by ascending the mountain. And at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see that he is received by those crowds as speaking authoritatively. 
So the Sermon on the Mount, really early, pretty early in Matthew's Gospel, uh, does reveal Christ as the fulfillment. And uh, this kingdom of heaven, again, Van Drunen sort of stepping back and looking at the big picture of first Adam, second Adam, he argues that it is that heavenly kingdom which uh, the first Adam would have attained had he been faithful in the garden. So Van Drunen's point, and this isn't universally agreed upon by anyone, so I'll pause after I make this claim, is the commands of the sermon are not a universal human ethic meant for all people, but they are given only to those who are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He has and will win and secure this kingdom for them. And we enter a kingdom that doesn't seek justice, but basks in the reality of the justice that he has satisfied. And so in that sense, the Sermon on the Mount is a fulfillment of the law, not an abolition of it. So it expresses an ethic that exhibits reconciliation and forgiveness and uh, that uh, the gospel now can forsake the claims of justice against those who have wronged them. Any thoughts or questions or response to that idea? Is that novel to you? Is that how you've heard the Sermon on the Mount uh, described in the past? Is that how you understand it? Okay. I don't think you're asleep. No. So, in this sense, and this is, I think, the first sense for us to not the first sense, but one sense in which we are foreigners and strangers, right? Turning the other cheek, uh, giving someone your cloak when they ask you for something uh, less. This is uh, not an ethic that's common in the world. And in that sense, we live in the world, which does exist under this regime of justice and law. Uh, Many of the kingdoms of this world, if you think, again, of the Noahic uh, uh, legitimating principle, Right in terms of the sword being given to the civil magistrate to execute justice, the church is somewhat unique and apart from that, distinct from that. Now, the important thing, though, and some people debate, you know, well, is the Sermon on the Mount just an ideal that's never accomplished? Is it something that we can actually, can you actually live that way? You know, I think it was the Anabaptists that would go around in the time of the Reformation with like wooden swords, right? Like, they, were, they carried swords that weren't real swords because they said, we are in the kingdom of heaven, right? We don't bear the sword anymore. We bear this instead. And then some other Anabaptists came along with real swords and it got real messy. But um, I think one key is that Jesus in the New Testament intended his words to be put into practice in this world. But not as a civil entity, not as a territorial kingdom, but in the church. So, um, the Sermon on the Mount says, those who do the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Even the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, baptizing, teaching them to do all the things that I have said. So, the church is that society, that community, which strives towards and lives under this heavenly uh, regime. And that's... Again, established already in the Sermon on the Mount as, as probably somewhat of a, of, a, of a summary statement, a treatise, you know, describing uh, Christ's teaching about that heavenly kingdom. 
But then let's correlate this for a moment with Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Right? When Peter confesses that Jesus is uh, the Christ, the Messiah, he's, Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Again, that heavenly kingdom. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that heavenly kingdom, which the Sermon on the Mount introduces and describes, later on in chapter 16, Jesus is saying, this is where the entrance to heaven is. Right? This is heaven breaking in now in the church, which possesses in its ministry the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Matthew 18, talking a little bit further about uh, discipline and life, real world life in this kingdom, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see, there's this idea that if you do not follow the ethic of the church, you will then be put outside the church. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Drawing back again to the introduction of the idea of the church two chapters earlier in Matthew 16. So these keys of the kingdom of heaven, this heavenly kingdom, is really expressed in flesh and blood in the life, the society of the church on earth. So the church is the community where the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is to be followed. Now, in teaching about this church, Matthew also indicates that the kingdom of heaven, uh, Matthew's gospel, Christ and others, right, parts of that, is not found in the political communities of the broader world, the common kingdom. Uh, He praises the centurion, who has an inherently uh, violent profession. He doesn't tell him to stop being a centurion, right, but he praises him for his faith. He can enter the kingdom of heaven and yet still serve in the common kingdom of this world. We could use uh, paying taxes uh, to Caesar as a similar thing. Submission. The state has authority still. Even though the kingdom of heaven is now breaking in, its foundation has been laid in Christ and in Peter um, as a stone upon which it is built on that confession of Christ. Jesus, again, uh, Somewhat of an argument from silence, right? But he doesn't command the kingdoms of the world to follow the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. I don't believe, um, you know, it's funny, theonomists don't generally uh, seek to um, legislate via the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) They prefer the Old Testament law, right? If this is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven, uh, that's not the kingdom that most visions of of dominion or theonomy uh, appeal to. It would be very difficult to run a state on those grounds. So, 
That's one of uh, Van Drunen's first arguments. This, this idea of the church as inheriting the Old Testament uh, mantle, as it were, of the Abrahamic and Mosaic administrations. The church is now the locus of all those promises in Christ. And this church has an ethic, an ethic it's called to live out in this world, even as it lives amidst and among uh, the common kingdoms of this world. So the next uh, chapter is really uh, the centerpiece on um, describing what the church is all about. But just a few things that can be said. Right? The church we're talking about here is a visible community. We're talking about the visible church. Um, it's marked out by rites, right? by baptism. Membership happens uh, by profession of faith. Uh, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. It's a community of salvation expressed outwardly, visibly. Um, it's described as a body, as a household. And it exercises the keys of the kingdom and disciplinary uh, procedures. Um, one of the things that Van Drunen points out here is an important distinction. distinction. And as we go forward uh, in the next two chapters, we'll want to think about the difference between the church as an institution and individual believers. There are some different ways of talking about this. Uh, sometimes they talk about the church's organism. Um, so, you know, we could, in one sense, talk about the church as individual believers living their life in the world. But what we're referring to here is the institutional expression of the church. So, while the church ended the Mosaic economy, it ended this uh, theocratic entity uh, that had a particular geography, a temple, a kingdom, a territory, um, it didn't end, it didn't make any changes to the con common kingdoms of the world that were established by the Noahic Covenant. Those remain uh, while the earth remains. Um, and, and the purpose, just to remind us all of that Noahic Covenant, were twofold. The preservation of the natural order, rain and seasons and food, um, and the preservation of a social order. What does... Um, the New Testament say, Van Drunen asks about some of these common kingdom institutions. Family. Christ did not establish marriage or the family. God established them at creation and blessed them under the Noahic covenant. So Jesus didn't have to reestablish them. There's not a uniquely Christian vision of the family. Now this having been said, Christ does acknowledge the family. He confirms its authority structures and um, the church and the, the, the kingdom of heaven makes use of the family in bestowing saving blessings. The covenantal nature of the promises uh, are lived out through the family. But the family itself, properly speaking, unlike the church, is a common institution. Believers and unbelievers benefit from family structures. It's not redemptive. Uh, yes, you receive, you may receive the baptismal promise, the generational promises in your family, but again, that is not the locus where that salvation is delivered and guaranteed. Um, now, there are also special provisions for how Christians should engage in this common cultural institution of family. Marriage, uh, there are a few single men in the room, right, should only marry other Christians. Um, there is a constraint there. 
Parents should bring children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So child rearing, which has, has a societal function, right, a common function in a Christian home, also has a redemptive function. Uh, going back to marriage, we might, we might notice well that, that coming to faith doesn't cancel, right, the marital relations of a believer with an unbeliever. It doesn't supersede that. Paul instructs uh, converts, single converts within uh, a couple, within a married couple, to remain in that couple. And of course, saying more about children, children of believers not only are to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but they are called by Paul as holy. They have a, a holy purpose. Likewise, perhaps a little more controversial, but Christ didn't establish the state. He, as we've already said, viewed it as legitimate, whether magistrates and citizens are Christians, since it exists under the Noahic Covenant. In other words, you don't need believers in the state to legitimize it. The New Testament, this is a quote from Van Drunen, never indicates that civil authorities have any responsibility to make the social or political order conform to the redemptive kingdom of heaven. Now, um, I'm not sure about our crowd this evening, but I think that would um, probably um, raise a lot of questions among Christians, right? You're telling me, are you saying, is Van Drunen saying that God's law is not to inform the law, the civil law of our land? But I think to understand the claim of that quote, right, he's talking about the, the particular ethic, the redemptive kingdom of heaven, that Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying, the church does not tell the state to adopt that ethic. What are Christians to expect? The state to provide the enforcement of justice so they may lead a peaceful and quiet life. One, I think, clear example, perhaps we could discuss a few hypothetical. The state bears the sword against evildoers. It doesn't turn the other cheek, right? There is this sense where you have a fundamental conflict in the ethic of the common kingdom and the redemptive kingdom of the church. Likewise, in discussions in our church order about uh, ecclesiastical discipline and ecclesiastical uh, repentance and reconciliation does not remove uh, the use and necessity of civil discipline, right? A bank robber, um, an adulterer may be forgiven and reconciled to the church of Jesus Christ and may still go to prison depending upon the circumstances it may be the case that a divorce is still viewed as justified and in order, and yet there could be a forgiveness in a, in a broken marital situation. Obviously, we desire full reconciliation, but so there is that tension there, right, of these two regimes uh, side by side. Um, Ventrunen makes the point that this command for the state to bear the sword, in essence, establishes the state as belonging to that Noahic common kingdom. It couldn't be anything but that, given that it is to enforce God's law in that sense. And the church, uh, the, the New Testament rather, has no place for the church to bear the sword. Um, there's even that sense in Romans 12, right, where Paul says, uh, he's talking about the church, and when he transitions to Romans 13, he says, 
make room for the wrath of God. Like, let God judge, right? Stepping aside and, in a sense, laying aside the sword that they had borne in the Old Covenant in the Mosaic administration. No longer. Paul is taking something away that the Mosaic economy wielded and giving it or, or preserving it only then in the state. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, a passage you all are probably familiar with, is a wonderful example of how these two uh, forms of, of justice or sort of um, association work themselves out. Uh, Paul is talking about sort of the excommunication of sexually immoral people, right? And he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, right? So Paul is saying, I didn't mean don't associate with sexual immoral people at all. It might be your master, it might be your colleague, it might be your student or your teacher, But he says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So the church is called to image this holiness of Christ, the holiness of that kingdom of heaven, in a way that Paul acknowledges that the world will not and cannot. So that Sermon on the Mount, again, is addressed to those blessed people, blessed are those, right, who have received that kingdom. And in this sense, there is almost an oil and a water division distinction. And Paul even can go on to say, I mean, can you imagine, um, well, maybe dating myself a little bit, but I guess there's probably some contemporary analog, but like, you know, the televangelists of the 80s or the 90s, the Pat Robertsons, right? Can you imagine them? I don't know how they'd preach this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Right? What a great line from Paul. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Similar to Romans 12. Make room for the wrath of God. He will judge the world. Purge the evil person from among you. We judge inside the church, not outside the church. And again, this presumes the existence of these common institutions that don't have the sacred function. There's no other way for that to um, really parse or make sense. God is judging the world. Now... It's not only referring to the final eschatological judgment, right? God is judging the world now through civil institutions. He's ruling and governing through that Noahic covenant. And he will, at the end, reveal all his wrath on sin in the world. So we don't have to go out of the world. We are in the world as a diaspora, as a dispersion. Um, So we should have our work and our politics and our economics in common with unbelievers. Now, uh, he closes this chapter with with three uh, perspectives on the common kingdom. Have I generated any questions or comments? I'll pause before I hit those three perspectives. Okay. Okay, go for it, Josh. There have always been sexually immoral people. But you get to grow pregnant and probably marry her and have a family with her. 
Yeah. Maybe that's not ideal, but like, frankly, it's better than abortion or broken families, which is what we're looking at now. Um, and so, like, an argument has been made, and I don't know that this is a governmental issue, but it seems like culturally there is some benefit to having some kind of Christian element. I, I just wonder, does this kind of teaching contradict that? Or like, what, what does it say about a culture that's seeped with Christianity such that there are value expectations that are, on the whole, probably better than the alternative? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a very good question. I think it would be good to discuss. Um, it might come up a little bit in, in the next few chapters in terms of how the church does have an impact on the world around it, right? Um, I don't think we have any reason um, to say, like for instance in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, the inside, the outside, the church. I don't think we have any reason to say that, that all um, cultures, times, and places are, are morally equivalent, Right? So we could postulate a wide range of just and unjust societies. Um, you know, maybe the Old Testament, um, when you see right, Sodom and Gomorrah as one extreme, or is it Isaac that goes with Abimelech, or, or even Abraham with Abimelech, right? And there's a certain justice or righteousness, sort of a certain um, e- even working peace with God's, covenant community and the world um, in the wells there in Genesis uh, 25, 26, whatever, um, 22. So I think the scriptures tell us that there could be very, very wicked kingdoms, right? And less wicked kingdoms. Then in the Christian age, we encounter, um, well, I mean, if I'm going to go through the whole of his Christian history, this would be a very long-winded answer. But, you know, you have the whole spectrum of conceptualizations of Christendom and entire cultures that are attempted to be modeled or built on at least the Decalogue, right, that level of morality. Um, I think going back to, to some of, of the categories that Van Drunen laid out, right, it's, it's legitimate but temporary, not final, Right? There's, there's a least common denominator sense of the justice we find in the world. And so I don't, I don't think there is anything in this teaching that says that believers as citizens can't have a beneficial impact on the societies in which they live. Right, The, the category confusion that we want to avoid is that that's redemptive. It, can we say it's better, that it's a positive moral influence? Right, yes. And the problem, or one problem comes when we say, well, America used to be a Christian nation. Like, at least we had, you know, a shame culture around divorce. Like, we preserved um, some moral norms. As if Christianity is a religion of the law, right? The confusion point there is to, is to subvert this idea that it is this heavenly kingdom of reconciliation, of turning the other cheek, of sort of the fulfillment of righteousness in the person of Christ, as opposed to a way of living in the world. So I think you, 
the question was, does two kingdoms in Van Drunen's model contradict that or overturn that? I don't think so, right? I, I think it leads us to making some distinctions and being more careful with our language. But also urging Christians um, leaves, I think, a lot of room to urge Christians to live out their lives and to make the world in which the cultures in which they live better. I mean, the, is it Jeremiah, the, the, the passage, right? The letter to the exiles, right? Make that kingdom a better place. I think there is the prospect. I mean, I think we see that some in, in the career of Daniel, right? His justice, his wisdom accrues to the benefit of that society, and the wise king will embrace Christian wisdom to that extent, ideally not confusing his role as a uh, you know a divine king, um, but embrace the presence of church communities, faith communities, and for the benefit they can do. Now, whether or not you know there should be a presidential office of faith-based. Initiatives is another question, right? Should the state then start funding faith actors in the public square? And does that cause all sorts of problems? I think that's an interesting policy question. Did you have something, Caden? Yeah, um, two questions for time. I don't think we're running out of time. Although Kyle's about to leave. I think so. Um, So if the Sermon on the Mount, trying to restate your question, right? If the Sermon on the Mount presents an ethic of the heavenly new creation, right? That in a sense is only possible, is only, we can only be attained in a sense is only binding on those who are in Christ by faith, right? Um, Is there any teaching in there Right, that is applicable to the world and the common kingdoms in which we live, the broader culture. Um, I think I would probably want to go at that by saying that, that clearly, if we think about God's law as love God and love neighbor, right? And that's the covenant of creation is founded on that moral law. The covenant of redemption doesn't substitute a new law, right? It, it, offers the promise of the gospel and Christ's fulfillment of that law. But take murder and hatred in one's heart. Now, in one sense, um, believers are then called to confess 
their murderous intents and desires of our hearts. In a sense, it ratchets up the holiness of God for the purpose of our confession and forgiveness of our sins. There's also a practical common piece of wisdom there, right? Murder, hatred is murderous, and hatred, in conclusion, will lead to murder. I mean, I think there's analogies, right, between the, the heavenly law and the perfection it attains to. But of course, we, we can't, or, well, we might say we might not want to have, like, thought police, right? Hate crimes, well, they do exist, but do we, can we really police the heart as Christ or Jesus polices the heart? That, that's one aspect. I mean, you raise the other thing of, of this retaliatory justice. I mean, you could argue that even in the civil sphere, right, um, how do you end cycles of violence? Like, you need some sort of uh, city of refuge, some sort of truce, some way, you know, for, for peace to be restored to, to broken societies and cultures whether it's gang violence or something like that. So I, didn't, I don't think there are no analogs, right? But I think there is a sense where the ultimate orientation of the Sermon on the Mount is a law which only believers in Christ can even begin to attempt to fulfill. And, and it presents a standard which can only be enforced in the church in terms of sins of the heart which we're called to repent from and seek the Spirit's work and sanctifying ourselves. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a fundamentally um, discontinuous ethical regime. I think there is sort of a fundamentally different orientation, right? Because uh, there's still a place for the Lex Talia. I mean, I always think, you know, if... If my daughter's getting raped on the streets of New York, do I do I want the police officer following you know the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> no, I want him to go, you know, take uh, um, take a pound of flesh from that criminal. And so, there, in that sense, we can imagine scenarios where they're like oil and water and don't mix at all, right? But then we can imagine other scenarios where where they approximate one another a little bit more closely. I think there's, I think there is a lot of Um, sort of moral ambiguity how the believer lives in the world according to, I mean, you know I think we have an officer of the law in the room, right? Liam, does that qualify? So, you know, when Liam's in court does he have to turn the other cheek, right? Yet he has this command from Christ Um, and like the centurion, right? He has a role to play in the civil kingdom but that's not the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount there's a lot in there, obviously so, I, I think it is a sort of a I don't think this is a cheat answer, but a continuity-discontinuity thing, right? There is a common foundation in God's holy law, in his moral will, but there is a discontinuity presented by the fulfillment of that law by Christ that empowers the church to be a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. Yeah. Did you have a second question? Yeah, uh, kind of related to that. Um, I think there's a point in the chapter where he says, you know, the classic Do you think that's too strong a statement? Or 
You mean the statement by Jesus? No. You're asking me to criticize Jesus? No. Yeah, so, so you, you're asking whether Van Drunen's going a little too far in criticizing yeah, that earlier because view. Because I think, you know, clearly there's some, like, regardless of how general it is, moral foundation in God, right? Well, I mean, this is one of the sources of one of the, well, in the 20th century, anyway, somewhat controversial Reformed questions where Reformed Christians took and take different positions on divorce, right? So Jesus explicitly says that Moses made accommodations. Now, that's not the Decalogue, but it's referring to, um, like, the civil application of that law, you know, out of what, the weakness, out of your weakness, Moses did this, but I say this. And so there's this higher standard. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to come at and to sort of characterize the discontinuity there. And and I think, you know, I don't think anyone in the Christian tradition ever said they're perfectly identical or they're absolutely discontinuous. The question is, how do you set that dial? And it's not just a matter of degree. It's a matter of, of what's the basis for the distinctions we find there. And I, and I do think, you know, the Anabaptists raise a different hermeneutical approach to that text. I mean, the classic... 16th century Anabaptist view is that is the way we should live in society. And so there is no legitimacy to the state. There is, you know, there is no just war. So these are, these are major questions, right, that the state cannot wage war um, and commit violence in that regard. I mean, you know, I think it's some of the most really deeply contested Christian issues of, of morality come around. How do we read that Sermon on the Mount? Um, I think this idea that you have common and redemptive kingdoms is a useful prism through which to read it. I think it provides an interpretive framework that makes good sense because, again, it points to a common moral law that is being applied and used in different fashions, right? Two different ends and different purposes. The one to restrain wickedness and evil in a temporary fashion uh, the other one to open the door to heaven, right? The preaching of the gospel opens and closes the door of heaven. And so I, I think you have to, I think to tie it to the gospel, to take it out of the category of mere law, which is what Van Drunen is doing, right? He's saying it's the active righteousness, the fulfillment of the second Adam that opens that vista to the heavenly kingdom and creates this new society on earth. Um, I think that's sort of the radical Van Drunen claim and I think the main reason it's different than 16th or 17th century descriptions in the Reformed or Lutheran tradition is that, you know, starting with the guy I wrote my dissertation on, but I mean, covenant theology drives a process in the Reformed tradition that really becomes more comfortable talking about progressive revelation, more comfortable talking about redemptive history as a category we need to take into consideration. 
And so you get in the Reformed tradition people like your Hardis Voss and the practice of biblical theology that says, yeah, we have something going on in the Old Testament, but something different going on in the New Testament, and that there is a progressive unfolding, and there are real differences that can be, um, that can be brought to bear in how we interpret and imply Scripture. Um, so the mature Reformed tradition, the 21st century, can talk about that progressive revelation This is an area of development of doctrine, I would submit, in a way that the 16th century really struggled with. Um, But, you know, it's it's interesting. The the Reformed view, the Protestant view, really drew upon law and gospel to talk about these two different regimes in a way. um, There was in um, a similar kind of question, but in my dissertation research, I remember seeing a very early printed Bible, um, like right the early part of the 16th century, so 1500 or 1490 or something like that. Very, you know, not Protestant, obviously, Catholic, Latin Bible. And it was sort of like a study Bible. There was a sheet in the front page of the Bible. And it said, Old Law, Moses, Sinai, Ten Commandments. New Law, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Spirit, right? So you had this letter-spirit schema for much of Christian history in how to relate the Old and New Testament. But the interesting thing was, it turned Jesus into a new lawgiver. Right? It didn't really use the insight of law and gospel and soteriological contrast between covenantal regimes, which is what you start to get in the Reformed tradition. So continuity and contrast has always been the struggle of the church, but different schemas have been used to come up with that. Um, The medieval church just made Christ a new lawgiver. And instead of exterior laws, and instead of murdering people with your, with your hands and the body, you murder people with your heart. And there was no comfort there. There was no gospel peace, right? It was worse. You were in a worse situation. That's a good set of questions. You just have to answer but I'd like you to put a final point on it. Is this replacement theology? And... Especially when he, he opens talking about this first Peter passage, which I found really interesting because Peter seems to refer to the subject, to the, I guess, addressee, as Jews when he refers to Gentiles being the opposite of that. I don't think that's. It, Paul probably. I don't think Paul would use that language, it seems, but. But Maybe it could have, depending on context. Right. Right. In other words, I don't think the meaning has changed. I think the style has changed. When he says, keep your conduct pure among the Gentiles. That, that's very interesting language to me. Kind of the implication that those to whom he is writing are non-Gentiles. Then you have this... And, and I think when I said you have answered it, it's like, I'm struggling with that continuity and distinction kind of... So how do you define replacement theology? I, I would say the, the replacement theology is that the church is the new Israel. But if that's true, then why do we have such a clean break with the Mosaic Covenant? If that's not true, then why, are, uh, why does Peter say keep your covenant pure among the Gentiles as though they are a continuation? Um... I'm not sure I followed you that last little bit there. Um, In other words, why does Peter refer to the new church as non-Gentiles? I see. Well, I mean, Peter is going to use, as well as Paul, like kingdom of priests, a lot of Old Testament 
language, right? He's going to use a lot of Abrahamic mosaic imagery on what the new covenant people of God are. They are the fulfillment of... I mean, my view is not very subtle or nuanced on replacement theology. I haven't thought about it a lot. My, my basic understanding is that replacement theology is a sort of a derogatory term, right? Post-Holocaust to say that certain Christian theologies erase the Jewish people and open the door to anti-Semitism, right? Um, I think the church doesn't replace Israel. The church is Israel. There isn't a replacement. There's a continuity there. And, of course, it's, you know, the people of God go from Abraham, so pre-Israel, through Israel, to the new covenant, Israel, like the heavenly Zion, right? So Israel hasn't been replaced. The Jews haven't been replaced. So why can Peter still use that imagery? Again, I think Peter can talk about unbelievers as Gentiles, though he probably has Gentiles in his church, right? But he's saying, you're the new Israel. Like, you're, you're the temple of God. You're the holy kingdom. You're the kingdom of priests. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think Paul could probably say the same thing, depending on the audience and the context, right? It, maybe he wouldn't say it because of how much he thought and conceptualized himself as an apostle to the Gentiles and focused on their inclusion, right? Maybe he would have just said, ah, Peter, I wouldn't go about it that way, right? But I think the idea would be the same, right? That we are... The children of Abraham are the children by faith. That's the same claim, right? If you're not of faith, you're not Abrahamic, you're a Gentile, as it were. Does that follow? Does that make sense? Or does that answer your question? It it follows, but I think that, then why is there such a clean... It, it, it seems as though then there's a, there's a, it seems strange to both affirm that and also affirm a very clean break with the mosaic. So I would probably layer, I would probably layer, no, no, that I would probably layer on that. I think something that's helpful to answer that is the epistles to the Hebrews. And even though it's just one element of the Old Testament types and shadows, and, and Gerhardus Voss talks about this in a way that he has this diagram and he says, you know, in Hebrews 8, Moses goes up on, on the mountain and he sees the blueprint for the temple, for the tabernacle to become the temple, right? It's not as though the, the shadow isn't um, Old Testament to New Testament, right? It's heaven that casts a shadow down. And so the, the jarring effect from Moses to church the setting aside that that disjunction there is that that heavenly shadow is now replaced by the heavenly reality that is breaking in with Christ. So in other words, Jesus goes up to a heavenly temple and offers the perfect sacrifice once and for all up there, right? That reality casts a shadow back. But that shadow, the function and purpose of that shadow has to end, has to cease with the coming of Christ. Now that's talking specifically about the sacrifices and that aspect of the atonement, right? The once and for all sacrifice. But we could just take all the types and shadows of that mosaic economy and and use the same imagery there. Like the heavenly Zion and the earthly Zion, right? So Paul can then flip it in Galatians 4 and talk about the Jerusalem that is above and talk about that uh, sort of play almost a similar game, right? And say, oh, they are, the, old, the Jews are now in that role of Gentiles, as it were, because they're persecuting the heavenly Jerusalem. So again, that's not, that's not replacement theology, because Paul is saying, 
They are now apostate Jews. The faithful Jews are in the church with me and Peter and the Gentiles. One church. And so, yeah, I think we're drawn into that that replacement language and the tension there. But that Voss's description of the eschatology of Hebrews in play in that epistle is really powerful. It's pretty a little dense to read, but it's a very powerful essay where it kind of clicks in your head that the shadowing and the type and reality isn't Old Testament, New Testament. It's a triangle. <laughs> and it's heaven. And heaven casts this dim shadow back. And the New Testament isn't like... The New Testament is heaven coming down. As um, at this conference that Luke and I went to, the missions conference, one of the ideas that stuck in my head um, from um, Craig Troxell, who is at Westminster Seminary, he said, you know, the Lord's Supper isn't a foretaste, it's a taste. It's not a foretaste of the heavenly realities. It is the heavenly reality. The church is the heavenly reality. Now, we also want to talk then about already and not yet, and a consummate heavenly reality, right? So in that sense, it's a foretaste of the consummation. But the New Testament can be super realized in the way it talks about that. We're seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's, that's the church. That's who we are. And so, um, yeah, I think that helps a little bit with the replacement idea. If we see that... You know, dispensationalism, I think, gives a lot of legs to that, right? Because they view that Old Testament as its own entity, God's plan. And it got to set that plan away and put a new plan, right? But the New Testament eschatology is fundamentally continuity because it's the same heavenly reality that casts a shadow and that now comes down. I should probably reverse. The shadow is the Old Testament. I'm drawing my own... Uh, I see your triangle. You see the triangle? So, I have a couple of Thanks, Luke. A couple of things that I think can really help is one: we hear Jews and Gentiles, and that's a very like there are places where that's really important. The word is ethnic, nations. In the Old Testament, goy is nations. It's the same word when we're saying Psalm sixty-seven as it is when it's setting up the wall of Jews and Gentiles. Right? We get Elena sometimes, right, in the New Testament, yeah, talking about Greeks, Greeks, right? In yeah. Hellenists. But generally, what we're talking about is when we see. Point. But we tend to think of, in retro 
you know, retrovert 20th century Judaism into the first century. And one of the things I've learned studying is that there are multiples. Until the temple is destroyed, Judaism is one thing, it's a lot of things. There are different beliefs about all kinds of stuff going on with all these different groups. And so to then say, well, to reject modern Judaism is to reject, you know, and engage in replacement theology. I would just say, they're later than me. I mean, modern Judaism has already replaced a lot of other Judaisms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, rabbinic Judaism has replaced temple Judaism exactly. in a pretty profound way. And, I mean, you have to make some pretty radical changes. Right? And that's why you get very broad diversities among the Hasidic and different, you know, reform. Because how, how do we wrap our heads around, no, no, we really do need to do all those sacrifices. We just got to rebuild the temple first. Yeah. Or, no, that's all been... Replaced. So, anyway, great questions. Let me close with, with three broad, and I could fill these in if we want to, but he says, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, these were some of my notes on Van Drunen. God established them at creation and blesses them under the Noahic covenant. Uh, they, the authority structures of families are confirmed, and they're made use of in bestowing saving blessings. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could see room for objecting against Van Drunen's language there. I think the important thing for Van Drunen becomes um, to think of sort of, as he presented it even a couple of weeks ago, what he has sort of added to this twofold kingdom idea is to try to map it on biblical covenants, right? So, if it exists in creation, if it is a function of that creation covenant, you know, the marriage ceremony between Adam and Eve, it is necessarily common. And so I think Van Drunen is, is it's sort of, I mean, I think there are, are times when sometimes you could describe some reality with one schema and another schema and, you know, sort of, if you had a three-dimensional shape that was like a, a Swiss cross one way, but it was three-dimensional, so it was thick. And if I held it up this way, you would, you would see a Swiss cross. And if I turned it this way, you'd see a square, right? That whole rotation of shapes idea in three dimensions. I think Van Drunen and Godfrey could sort of both be right, right? Well, if you're talking about how the family is used in a saving way in the redemptive kingdom... Well, yeah, you can talk about all sorts of unique blessings that are uniquely conferred in families. Um, and, you know, we do have 
indeed a phase of the redemptive kingdom, the economy, when it is a family. You know, to add even more that, I mean, well, not even just a phase. I mean, the proto-evangelion, you know, the seed of the woman. It starts off as a generational childbearing promise. And so there's kind of an unavoidable um, birth aspect to the gospel, right? Um, and so, you know, I think for Godfrey to push on that and say, no, the redemptive covenant is essentially reproductive and childbearing, family-like. Well, there's a lot to that. But I think for Van Drunen, if, if he's describing the same reality and saying, yeah, but the family has roots in a common sense predating that and is taken up and adapted. So I, I think they're sort of describing the same reality in two different ways. And I wouldn't want to pit them against each other too much. I don't know. Luke, do you have any thoughts? A few. One is your And like in our tradition, we don't talk about marriage as a sacrament. We don't take marriage and make it holy in the church. We will, you know, solemnize marriages, but it's not something that only belongs to the church. It is a common cultural institution. I think family is the same way. That doesn't mean that Christian marriages, back to a certain amount, don't have certain problems. Christian families don't have certain problems. Christians in those institutions, and even to uh, Godfrey's point, right, there is a certain blessing to this. And he would say, you know, this seems like which kingdom do they belong to? Which kingdom does the family belong to? Uh, and I think Van Drunen, when he articulates it, is well, if it's Christian family, it's both. If it's not a Christian family, it's one. Uh, and again, I think he was not quite sure what Godfrey was pushing for. Uh, and I actually looked, you know, you wrote this about family before that discussion. Um, was this like a West Cal conference? Yeah, it was a West Cal discussion. Yeah, I think it took place in the chapel time, but it was like, yeah. I think it's still on the website, right? Yeah. Hmm. We could. Yeah, or we could we could gather at the Cairo Delta Chi house and watch it <laughs> Do a drinking party. He said kingdom. He said two kingdoms, drink twice. And that's, you make a great point. I mean, we haven't mentioned that here, but I think that's a huge mark in Van Drunen's corner. That in heaven you'll never be give, give or be given a marriage, right? Do, you know, till death do us part. Marriage is not eternal. It's not new creational. And that, you know, I, th- I would put that in, in the Van Drunen category. You know, you went to a certain PCA church and they were questioning you being an officer or being single. And I've talked to a cousin who was questioning Conrad being an officer not having children. Right? The idea of how much you want to put stake in the family in the redemptive covenant. Because there are people who want to take it to the point of if you're not a husband with a wife and children, 
you're not qualified to serve. And of course, the redemptive family, you know, if, if Rich Kukin was here, I have to give, tap my, doff the cap to Rich Kukin, you know. Brother Kyle and Brother Luke, and you know, this is the family of God, right? Yeah. Um, there is a sense in which the common creational family is transcended in the church. We have a minister in Classes East who, it, it really kind of threw me the first time I met him, but I find it very enduring and sweet now that on the floor of Classes, he regularly just refers to people as, as Brother Liam and Brother Caden and... Um, and it's a wonderful reminder, right? So, I mean, again, that is, an, I think, another cross-cutting thing. We're, we're a family of God. And in a sense, you know, being born into the same household doesn't guarantee salvation, even in the New Covenant. It guarantees baptism. But I think Van Drunen's description explains the fact that, you know, I'm not saved by being born into to a certain set of parents, and the church is the eternal reality. The church family is the eternal reality that I will be in heaven with. So, I get Godfrey's point. You know, I think there's probably a piece of Kyperianism to Godfrey where you're talking about like spheres and the family is a sphere. So, again, Godfrey's drawing authority structures vis-a-vis Kuiper in terms of different spheres. And I think that's an interesting philosophical project. I don't think it's as biblical. So I just called Godfrey unbiblical along with Kuiper. So take that. What? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Three quick things. We could fill these in or not, but he in the next two chapters really talk about this. But he says, "What's our Christian perspective on this common kingdom?" So he says, "Christians should pursue cultural activities not with a spirit of triumph and conquest over their neighbors, but with a spirit of love and service toward them." So as we live among the Gentiles, we don't, you know, talk about taking back America, taking over America. Um, so um, that's the first one. The second one, the New Testament calls us, while, while we aren't triumphalistic and we are in a servant mode, we're still called to critical, engage, uh, critical engagement, right? So um, we... Um, are not confirmed, uh, conformed to the world. We're transformed. Right? We would discern the world. So just because we're confessing that we aren't here judging those outside of the church, yet we are critically engaging them. We're judging uh, their philosophies. right? So 2 Corinthians, we're not waging war according to flesh, but we destroy the arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive. So there is that antithetical aspect but it's not a, a conquering or a conquest. And then the third point is that we are to engage in cultural activities with a deep sense of detachment from this world and of longing for our true home in the world to come. So this idea, right, that, that the reality, um, you know, Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, that's not literal, Right? I still have a wife, I can't give her up, or my daughter. But those who mourn as though they're not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And so it's that idea of um, being heavenly minded, having our life hidden with God in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. So those are sort of three broad perspectives, right? Not with a spirit of triumph and conquest, with a spirit of love and service. 
uh, critical engagement and um, longing for our true home, a sense of detachment with the things of this world. And, you know, we could apply those kinds of things, right, to political, cultural, different areas of engagement. And I think we, we see a lot of different models of Christian engagement arise from those um, with some overlap and tension in different spots. So those, I don't know if there are any questions or comments. That's kind of the concluding section of this chapter, those three sort of models. In the next two chapters, the final two chapters, or next two sessions after Ascension Day in June, we'll look at sort of what is the church, the spirituality of the church, some of those issues that are raised by thinking of the more in a more thoroughgoing way about the institution of the church. And then the final one is on a lot of a grab bag of practical issues. So it's eight o'clock. All right, uh, let's close. Any other questions or comments? Of course, we'll sit around and talk afterwards, but close the, the formal portion and we'll sing, I love thy kingdom, Lord.